The Davises have had a baby, but they're not sending out any announcements. Most new parents are a little scared when they have a baby. The Davises are terrified. You see, there's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. It's alive. It's alive. Don't see it alone. Please. Rated PG. Welcome everyone, it's Halloween season here on 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. I'm Mike McPadden, I wrote a book called Heavy Metal Movies, and then I wrote a book called Teen Movie Hell. In uh, Madison, Wisconsin, my co-host, introduce yourself please. Ow! <laughs> I'm doing my Count Floyd. Uh, ben Reiser, here in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the uh, the Badgers. The uh, Bucky Badger is the mascot for the UW-Madison, where I work at the Wisconsin Film Festival and UW-Cinematheque, bringing you films and joy throughout the year, and especially in this wonderful holiday season that kicks off with Halloween and, and ends um, uh, next Halloween. All year round is a holiday <laughs> for me. Wow. And our special guest tonight from, uh, are you like in L.A. proper? I am. Jeff? But I'm from New Jeff York. Jeff introduced this. Well, okay, that's fine. Jeff, we're, you know, I don't know if you ever heard the show. We don't introduce anybody. We let them introduce themselves. Because yeah, tell gonna, us who oh, you are. You've got your resume in it. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I didn't know I had to do that. Uh, well, let's that's see. All right. who this am I? is going to be the I'm best gonna version. going to require a lot of you. Yes. Who am I as a person? As who am I in, in, in the world of this stuff? I am Jeff Kushner, and uh, I am a, my profession is a sound designer. I'm a sound editor, and I work a lot in, currently a lot of television, and uh, prior to that did a handful of films, but my main thing is a uh, watching and re-watching and re-watching the same movies over and over again. But now Jeff Jeff and I, uh, as is so often the case here on 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s, Jeff and I met at SUNY Purchase, where we were both in the film department. Son of a gun. Uh, so the only person here tonight who didn't make it into the SUNY Purchase Home Department is my co-host, Mike McPadden, who was, what did you say That's you right. were? Media studies? Media studies. What did that mean in real words? Uh, it meant that I could take film courses and that oh. uh, I could, had I made it to senior year, I could have uh, like written a screenplay as my senior project. So did you so take it film was a, It was a workaround. Um, no, because I had to take like all my freshman crap first, and I was only there so you, for two years. So. Which year? Oh, so you never, you never took I, a film. I class. took a, no, but I took media courses. Uh, I was there eighty six to eighty eight. Oh, okay. Um, I did not take any fucking film courses. As a matter of fact, give I never me an got example of one of the media courses that you took. I don't know. I took one with Merrill Friedman. Um, that was like really, really easy. Yeah, it was like really easy. It was like the one class I didn't fail. Um, cause it was so easy. I actually showed up. No, I had to take, cause like, you gotta remember, I came in with an, well, not remember. I came in with an, an atrocious, atrocious academic record. So I had to take like remedial math, Spanish, all this crap. And, were you, uh, um, over at St. Francis Xavier, where you got this atrocious record, yes. were you, were you in trouble with the law there? I mean, did they, did, were you, were you threatened to be expelled at any point from that school? 
I was I had I, I was a D minus student from kindergarten on. But nobody really hassled you about it. No, passing was seventy. I had a seventy-one average. I finished. Oh, okay. <laughs> I finished two hundred and eight in a class of two hundred and sixty-nine. So, well, you know, there's a lot of people under you in that in that list. That's it's not right. bad at all. Yes, that's right. I probably had so. similar stats in my high school career. Um, but 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 getting back but to I, Jeff, but Kushner, I could write some bullshit. Okay. That's how, which is how I got into that stupid high school. How I got yeah. into purchase was I probably just I wrote some shit and charmed people and got in. But they did make right. me take like you know, high school, freshman year of high school Spanish and math and things like that. So I'm going to tell you an, a, a true story that is very boastful and you know whatever. But I, I, one of the few classes now Jeff can attest to this. If you actually got into the film program at SUNY Purchase, you were on Easy Street because 90 out of 120 credits. Were all film or film related. You virtually had right. to take almost nothing other than film classes if you're in the film department. I see Jeff's looking like maybe that's not true. I had to take some other courses. I had to take an uh, I, but I selected some interesting ones. Like I took yeah. foundation sculpture, right. and I got an A in foundation sculpture because the teacher said that I took the class more seriously than the art students. But I didn't produce anything worthwhile. I just, but I got the A. I took a class called. I, I love that I took this class. It was called Psychology of Consciousness, and I think every filmmaker should take that course. Sure. And I took one called Anthropology, Anthropology and Film. Oh. Which was basically a lot of documentaries. It wasn't really about wasn't about. Wait, so that's film. like you you took one of your other non film requirements and turned out it was about film also. So that's really you really gamed the system. Well, it really wasn't because they you it was really an anthropology class, yeah. but they just showed us a lot of films. Sure, well, but like we I spent said. we didn't we didn't talk about the films. We we talked about meditation and uh, a- aborigines and things like that. Mm-hmm. We never really talked about how the films were made. We just talked about the content that related to the class. What did you watch? Did you watch that The Last Wave, that uh, that movie? Oh, no, no. It was all documentaries that nobody would ever hear of. Right. No, no, no. It wasn't, it wasn't, those were films. No, no, no. no, I I took it at purchase. I had to take an anthropology class and that's what they showed was the Nook of the North. It's a documentary. Oh, this was like a documentary (laughs) of like the something or other tribe of somewhere and they snort this leaf and they have a, and you know, and the voiceover guy speaks Mm. like this. Okay. It's not like a movie that you would discuss in any other way but it was so it was, it was supposed to be an anthropology class yeah. but i took it because uh, it had the end film in and film on it and i fell for that part okay but i didn't get to tell you my um, boastful anecdote please now, i yeah, took let's an, go back to that <laughs> i took an art history class and um i i didn't pay any attention i i feel like i, I don't rem- remember actually being in the class at all but i remember we had to take a test i think it was our final and it was one of these blue book exams, which, again, I was not accustomed to because I don't think any of our film classes had those. Little, you know what I'm talking about? These little blue books where you yeah, fill out Yeah, it's the only way answers. I ever got anywhere in school was writing in those fucking things. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, there were all these questions. I didn't know the answers to any of them. And so I just wrote funny stuff. Like I tried to come up with the funniest answers I could. And they, a lot of these were supposed to be little mini essays. And so I wrote these, this whole long thing. And then I got called into the office by my art history professor 
And she said, well, I mean, you didn't get a single, you didn't even come close to getting a single answer right, but you did make me laugh a couple times during the course of me reading this whole thing you wrote, so I'm giving you a passing grade. And so that was how I passed one of my few non-film courses, was just by making up some stupid, apparently funny stuff. I did that. I, I'm going to I'm gonna step on your boast and say that is how I passed biology in high school. I wrote comedy answers on the final exam. And yeah, he just said, this, a- this, this made me laugh so much, I'm going to just give you a D. Kids, if you're listening out there, it, it, it sometimes it works. It's a, it's a proven method. Yeah. Kushner, Kush, you ever do that? Uh, not that, no. I, when I did do some teaching, I received some interesting things uh, from the students. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, I mostly was teaching. I did teach some film history, film language. A lot of places wanted me to teach sound because a lot of film schools don't teach sound. And um, they wanted me to give an exam. So I had, an, I had a question, a written exam. So I gave them a question on ADR. For the people who don't know, that's that means automated dialogue replacement. And that's when we're doing a, a line like this and then there's this noise on the microphone like that. And I might need to have the actor come back and replace the line later. So um, the question on the exam was, what is ADR and what are some methods of approach to it? Something to that effect. Yeah. Sorry. There you go with that. You need some ADR right now there, Kushner. I, had, I didn't realize the mic was in my way, and I, I had to itch myself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was talking about ADR, right? Yeah. So the student, uh, the question was about ADR. The student replied, uh, ADR is when one attorney <laughs> contacts another attorney, uh, and they uh, have uh, discussions in order to avoid going to court, ADR. So later on, I Googled ADR, and it came up with, uh, assisted dispute resolution. Ah, so kids, yeah. if you're going to cheat in class, if you're really adept with your phone and your teacher really can't see you using it, remember that if the class is about film, <laughs> the answer probably has something to do with film. Yeah. So uh, I, ha- I I couldn't let, even though it did make me laugh and it made you laugh yeah. too, I still couldn't, I still couldn't give the guy a passing grade. Hello, listeners. We're going to be talking about it's alive, Larry Cohen. <laughs> it's alive. We'll touch on the whole trilogy. Larry Cohen's "It's yeah. Alive." But but I was watching Island of the Alive today, and I was thinking to myself, this movie has some very haphazard um, ADR. But while I was watching the film, for the life of me, I couldn't remember what those initials were. I couldn't remember the the the, the initials ADR, and I kept thinking, wow. they've they've really they've some films seem like they've dubbed, and sometimes and what do they call that when they dub it after the fact? And I was like, it was driving me crazy. So I'm so glad you you mentioned that. Uh, Larry Cohen would have called it looping, right? His and generation, did, those guys, they called it. Looping oh yeah, in this. Were, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's alive. The Larry Cohen movie trilogy. Of yeah, but it's alive. Films. But hang on, Mike McPadden, because we we always need bonus Patreon content. So I wanted to say two other things about Kushner. One of them involves you, Mike. But the first one is that. Um, yeah, we had we had Scooter McRae on last week, and uh, formerly known as a, a different name. But you know who we're talking about, Jeff? When we say Scooter McRae, of course. Okay, good. Yes, I do. So he, he's Very another. Well. Cr- I appear. I was one of the actors in Shattered Dead. What? Oh my god! Wow. I was I was in Shattered Dead. I'm a fan <laughs> of your work, sir. I played a cop or something like that. Joe Bob Briggs was the champion yeah. of Shattered Dead. Like he wrote the the one and only rave review of that film and got it on the map. But even Joe Bob Briggs, and I was going to read his review to Scooter last week, but I didn't. But even Joe Bob Briggs says it boasts some of the worst acting ever to be committed to. to, to Except um, for this one guess, cop. 
Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but because, in, uh, you know, I, I think my character actually was turned out to be dead in the final cut, but oh, I think I was shattered. alive when I played the role. <laughs> shattered dead. Uh, this leads me into something that can lead us into It's Alive because well, well, I'm not it's ready something to, get to do there with yet. what I was mentioning earlier. <laughs> oh, this is, uh, neither am I. Save neither that am thought. I. Uh, it goes back to that. It oh, goes okay. back to that VCR thing. But go ahead. Well, good because that's what I do want to talk about. So, so anyway, so Scooter McRae said that the good thing about the purchase film department was that uh, there was no division in his mind between the different classes, like. Uh, upperclassmen were always involved with lower classmen's film. And I was like, I don't remember that being the case at all. I don't think I ever collaborated with any people who weren't in my particular grade, with the exception of Ed Marriage, who uh, helped us mix blood for a, a, a scene I was shooting as a junior. And he had a great recipe, surprise, surprise, for blood. But then the the only other person, as an uh, the only other upperclassman, well, not an upperclassman, but older than me, the only other person who I ever felt was friendly towards me and s- tried to strike up some kind of relationship with me, although I was too busy with my head up my own ass to really have Jeff Kushner as a friend, but was Jeff Kushner. But there was a, but there wasn't, it wasn't completely an altruistic thing from Kushner because as he's about to say, he and I were the, were maybe the two people that we knew on campus who had VCRs and I had a, a not an extensive, but a decent collection of uh, VHS tapes that I, you know, cop films I had copied over from store, store bought, store rented. Uh, and, and, and Kushner would come, come to the suite where I was living a lot and, and borrow movies from me from time to time. Is that, do you remember that Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things I was going to say, and it relates back to Shattered Dead. Oh. And just to uh, <laughs> go on what you were saying about about the different uh, classes at a, at uh, Purchase. Yeah. I did work on Hal Hartley's senior film in some capacity. I did work um, on some Bob Goss project as well, and they were in a different classes but so in terms of crews they did draw upon those lower folks like me and that's how i wound up on the crew of unbelievable truth right that kind of basically took the suny purchase model and planted it over there um yeah you're right that's you know that's how that came out of that you're right i think i worked on on nick gomez's senior film out on long island somewhere that's true but freshman year yeah but freshman year, I was the only person, which was 1983, I was the only person at Purchase that had a, a VHS player, a VCR. Even the film department didn't have those things. Right. And so my sophomore year, I heard about there's this freshman who has VCR. I mean, it was a big deal because people would pile into my dorm room, you know, like sardines, to watch a pan and scan of you know, eight, eight pan and scan festivals in a row. Yeah. And, uh, and it didn't matter. It was just, we were, that kind of access was really still pretty fresh. And what I discovered as I perused Ben's, uh, library were a lot of low budget horror films, so to speak films that to some degree I had written off because I thought films had to have a certain level of acting, a certain level of, production value uh, and a lot of these films looked real cheap to me and they weren't pretty to the eye and the acting was really awkward but as I borrowed them and watched them and as it accumulated 
I began to see, you know, that there was something really pure about these movies, that it went beyond production value. It went beyond the quality of the acting. And and so if Shattered Dead, you know, achieves something in that way, uh, a lot can be said for a lot of those filmmakers. I mean, filmmakers like the early stuff that Romero was making. Uh, Abel Ferrara did the Toolbox Murders. I think you might have had that in your shelf or something to that effect. There were movies of... Of that type, um, Wes Craven's early stuff. Yeah, I think I had am some... I, Hirsch- am I incorrect? No, you're right. I don't think I had the Ferrara, but I did have some H.G. Lewis movies, and that that's what came to uh, mind when you talked about Complete and, and Black. And Abel Ferrara would have been a driller killer. Driller killer, yes, thank you. You're correct. Yeah, I don't think I, I, don't think I had a VHS copy of Driller Killer, but maybe I did. That was a very... Um, uh, it, it all, but it... It was everywhere. That was omnipresent at video stores because they were. I, I don't know that there was copy. If it was just the issue that anybody could put it out, but that was <laughs> right. everywhere. Anybody? But when I see to. these movies, when I see these movies now, and when I saw them then, or whether whether they were directly from there or or films that I wound up seeing that were of that ilk, uh, I do associate it back to Ben Riser, and I remember that I saw a lot of films that, like I said, I initially. Didn't think they met my, you know, what what we expect production value of movies to be. It took me, I had to do a real second look. Because what I had to discover for myself was a difference between what my reaction to seeing something is and what the film itself is, what the filmmaker is attempting to do. But now the other thing, the the part of your resume that you did not uh, mention verbally when when you introduced yourself, was that you are the editor of record, uh, not just sound editor, but editor for a, a little number called D. Snyder's Strangeland. Oh, all right. right. And this is where Mike McPatton and comes in. Because Mike, you have an with anecdote. I yeah, do. Don't you have a D. Snyder? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I saw Strangeland at a, well, I'm the author of heavy metal movies. So obviously this is an important film. To me and my well, book, yeah, might as well be the cover star of that. Of Which, that by tone. the way, I'm I'm going to announce right here: Heavy Metal Movies is about to go into its third printing. Everybody, wow! So that's amazing. Me, thank you. That's amazing. So, and let me parenthetically say, D. Snyder knows we're recording this tonight. Oh, fantastic! Good, good. He texted me today, and I said, "I can't. I'm get coffee. I'm preparing for a podcast on <laughs> It's Alive." I well, wait um, a minute. Wait a minute. You and D. Snyder coffee. As of as of we were current he, day, he invited still? me. I got the text right here. He invited me today, and I actually had to be like, I re- I gotta, I got this podcast. I gotta really, I really gotta get it together. Wait, but I'm just so loving we, the fact that, that you are go, in regular contact still. Wow, with you're Snyder. you're in this coffee, is... the coffee zone of. Uh, I am, I am, I know. It's hard to. It is kind of surreal, but so I saw uh, Strangeland at a screening uh, somewhere in Manhattan, a little tiny screening room. Um, well before it was released, and the part of the movie where the Kushner girls, was probably in the in the, in the I was, audience. This is, I was you. I was gonna I'm gonna bet you were there. Um, the girl whose lips are sewn together when she goes to screen, and her flesh is torn off of her face. A woman stood up, <laughs> look on Jeff's face, <laughs> and and stormed to the door, and just turned to us and said, "Great movie, guys." 
and walked off. <laughs> and this is the one time. Like, I never believed. Like, every year at the Cannes Film Festival, it's like, oh, people were vomiting. People were beating up the peop- the, the director. and the- I never believed it. It's the one time I saw it happen. So, a couple of years ago, when Heavy Metal Movies came out, D was doing a record signing. So, I went and stood online to give him a copy of the book. And I told him the story. And he went, you were there? You were there? He goes, we said, we got to hit. As soon as it happened, we got to hit. <laughs> so I had that little bonding moment with D. Snyder. So please give him my best. And I will. I will. I'll fill him in on yeah. what we talked about. And um, when we were doing right. it. And I want to say one other thing about D. And if you could tell him this, I I know that he is also a teen sex comedy fan. And I know that he mm-hmm. wrote a screenplay back in the eighties that didn't get produced. That was inspired by Animal House. And I didn't quite know how to reach out to him properly to get him. I wanted to somehow get him involved with the teen movie hell just to get a quote from him or talk to him about something. So uh, let him know I wrote that book and I'd love to send him. Yeah, I I will do that. Thank you. I just realized I sort of have a D Snyder connection too in a strange way. This song that I wrote called We're Not Going to Make It. All right. uh, Wound up on the first presidency. Cease and desist. Uh, right, right, wound up on the first President's United States album, and I made a bunch of money off it. It's the only money I've ever made through my art. Uh, but but people who don't know music or or you know just have a very sort of when I, when I say oh I wrote we're not gonna this song called we're not gonna make it they automatically sing the Twisted Sister song we're not gonna take it. Mm. So I, I, he's he's been following me around for the last <laughs> thirty years as well. Uh, but okay, it's really time for us to start. Talking. It's, it's certainly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, can I say can I can no. I say yeah, okay, something that was that that was <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind when you said it's alive to me, which which is how I kind of circled around into talking about it because I couldn't go directly at it. And then you said it's alive, and I was just like, you know, bam! I mean, it's just like I, I'm I got it because it's alive immediately. It's an interesting hub point for a lot of different things about film about horror about the film itself about different types of directors about the way the industry was changing so many things but the first thing that comes to mind when i think about it's alive is the poster and the tv commercial yeah and when i think about that poster a lot of other movie posters come to mind like there was a time period where the posters were so cool and i mean we were younger and they, they were still breaking ground in this area and you know, there were the posters for like Prophecy and Dawn of the Dead and Magic and Alien and The Deep and The Island and Westworld and, and The Car and Young Frankenstein and High Anxiety. And it's like Wolfen, <laughs> you know, the, uh, who, uh, Food of the Gods. It's like, I want to see these movies so bad. I had the Food of the Gods poster over my bed at Purchase. And I wonder why I never got laid. Yeah, it's so friggin' cool, man! It's like, come, come in the giant rat's lair, young lady. <laughs> but for the ner- the the nerd geek, oh, dudes, you know, it. young yeah. young guy who still <laughs> has to get the grown up to take them to the R rated movie. Yeah. You know, those movie posters were like, I got, I've got to see that. I got to see that. I'm having a heart attack. I got to see it. Uh, it's alive was definitely one of those posters, and one of the things that jumped out at me was that it said it was rated PG. Yeah, and I was like, I can see this one. Yeah, I don't yeah. need to get my parents. That was a, that was a big deal. Yeah, was when you when you would get a PG gimme back in those days. Yeah, right. So, Kush, did you see It's Alive in the seventies? 
I saw it in the theater. And, wow. But I saw it. I saw it in seven, in seventy seven. I saw it in seventy seven. And I remember very it very specifically. And that and and the reason too is that it the film had an, a, a challenging history where it was made. Uh, when the studio was run by one group, and then when it was finished, there was a new group there, and they released it. Well, let's okay. Let me uh, stop yeah. us. Let me do a quick. Let's let's bring everybody up to speed with what this movie is. So, it's alive is the famous killer baby movie of the seventies, and I wrote up a quick synopsis, and we spoil everything. So, go watch the movie and come on back. Uh, Frank and Lenore Davis are expectant parents. They have an eleven-year-old son. They go to the hospital. Lenore gives birth to some kind of fanged, clawed monster who kills the doctors and escapes uh, with the monster baby on the loose. The press swarms the couple. Scientists want to study the dead body of the monster when they catch it. <laughs> A big pharma bigwig wants the baby completely destroyed, so nobody will get blamed for making it happen, the hospital administration stuff. Uh, the baby kills a bunch of people, including a milkman. Uh, he goes to his brother's school. He makes it home. Lenora wants to protect the baby. Frank shoots it and wounds it. The baby then flees into the sewer system, which as a child I thought was the funniest thing in the world. There's a final showdown. Frank tosses the baby on the on the hospital guy. The cops shoot them both to death. And the last words are, another one's been born in Seattle. So that is the story of its mm-hmm. life. Okay. Wow, nicely done. Thank you. Yeah. So a couple of general it, it, notes it, it, before so- we get into some specifics here. Not to be confused with yeah. Larry Buchanan's It's Alive, which is a, from oh. 1969. It's about a mad farmer who kidnaps a traveling couple to feed to his aquatic prehistoric monster that he keeps in a well. Um, the Bat People from 1974 is also once released as It's Alive. And I've never seen, uh, I've tried to watch the, the Larry Buchanan one, it was uh, impossible. Uh, but if, if you grew up in the 70s, you would know the monsters from both of these movies. They both, they're very cheaply iconic. Um I believe there also was an old movie called It's Alive that was not a horror film. It's like a Busby Berkeley. Wow. Movie. I can't oh. remember. Has anyone we'll seen it the It's Alive remake from a couple of years ago? I did. I did. I, I saw it. I did see it. Yeah. With Bijou yeah. Phillips. Is it terrible? I don't remember. Well, here, here, I saw it on cable. Uh, and yeah. I don't remember it. Yeah. I saw a monster. I, that- I saw a monster baby movie from about 10 years ago. Can't remember what it's called. Like Grace, some Grace. Yes, I have a whole yes. list of monster oh. baby movies at the end. We'll get okay. There. I didn't see that Grace one. was pretty good. Um, I but yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about it too, when I think about it, the movie when it came out in '74, one of the things I I came to notice when I was teaching was when I would talk about films, I would always discover that they really reflected what was going on in in the world at that time, or what were the collective concerns of people at that time, and horror films really showed that in 1974 you know which is the year after technically the year after the exorcist came out but i think it became more popular in 74 vietnam's still going on you know saigon didn't fall till april of 75 so we've got societal collective concerns about children about losing children to uh forces and powers that uh we can't that parents can't control Children were becoming distant from their parents. That they were, kids were becoming strangers. They were close, behind closed doors, and there was hostility towards their parents and authorities. And divorce was getting real, real big. And it all figures into both. It's alive and and it lives again. Well, 
Um, and let's not forget what might be the most important thing, which is something I've resisted this week uh, thinking of as a direct influence on It's Alive, but I feel that by the time It Lives Again kicks in, it's hard to argue that this is this was, if anything was on Larry Cohen's mind other than making a great sort of exploitation horror film, 1973 is when Roe v. Wade was decided. And there's mm. certainly, it's certainly easy enough to look at these films as a comment on on abortion and on, on well they even mentioned yeah well uh, you know explicitly in the movie the, no it's and in, in a bizarre way it's a pro-life movie <laughs> <laughs> well uh, because a lot of this has to do with fighting the movie is not about killing the monster it's about saving the monster and protecting the monster and can, trying to tell the monster you know We'll get into John Ryan's beautiful performance, but yeah. you know, you don't, you don't, you don't want you're, you're scaring them. See, you don't want to scare these. Trying to teach it not to be scary and trying to, you know, um, keep the monster from getting killed. What I want to uh, say though, I, it, watching it in 2020, it feels it feels much more uh, to address uh, another a, a different issue of parental responsibility and and the way in which. Parents always will love their children no matter what terrible thing their children do. And it feels much more like a comment about Columbine and other sort of school shooters like that. Like that, what do we do about Kevin or whatever the name of that yeah. movie is. But now, and I, but I understand that, that that couldn't have been on Larry Cohen's mind when he read Because this stuff, that stuff wasn't really happening. One of our teachers in college said, just because a director didn't intend to do something doesn't mean they didn't do it. Right. And I think throughout it's alive and it lives again. There are really strong thematic subtext that makes the film work. I think Larry Cohen's strength was as a storyteller and as a plot conceiver, uh, you know, and he was a screenwriter and he did write for other people like for Joel Schumacher and, and um, well, he, well, lots of people. Well, he wrote tons of TV shows. Um, he created TV shows. So I mean, yeah, he's a master storyteller. Right. But I, but I know yeah. that, but I know that Mike gets annoyed if people try to um, uh, talk about Night of the Living Dead as a political film, and he, you know, and I think I think that's fair enough to say that's not what Romero did. Really, I like what Jeff mind. said though. Even though the director didn't intend to do it, right? He did it. I've right. always said yeah, because- Dawn of the Dead has nothing to do with it was never made with consumerism in mind. They wanted to go in and wreck a shopping mall. Now I believe everything that has been wedged upon it since then works. You can experience mm-hmm. the movie that way. And it did capture a, a zeitgeist uh regarding that. And I, I mean I think later on Romero rode that to, you know, NPR appearances and stuff. I definitely think that I definitely think that Night of the Living Dead it, it reflects the Vietnam era. I think that in some ways the film deals with how we as a as as a species regard our dead and how we respect or disrespect our dead or how we view our dead and um you know i mean there's the racial element of the of the story as well and i mean did did he put it in there well even if he didn't it was what was going on at the time it was the collective concerns and they worked themselves into the art and i think that's what makes these art this kind of art, you know, stand the test of time and uh, let's say it become it elevates the material so that the low budget aspect of it, um, not only does that become invisible, in fact, in some ways it, it helps it, makes it seem more realistic. 
I, I agree with you completely. Towards the end of this discussion, we can talk about Larry Cohen in general and his legacy and, you know, how he's looked at uh, historically and, 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 you know, does he get enough credit? Does he not get enough credit? Do people think of him as an artist? And if they don't, why don't they? Um, but let's, I think we should start by talking about It's Alive. Right. Okay. And, 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 and that'll take us most of the way through this. And I want to say that the, as far as I'm concerned, there's two things that elevate It's Alive. I mean, certainly Larry Cohen's got a great idea and he's, and I think that Larry Cohen, I think we talked about this at another episode, that Larry Cohen's good at not only coming up with a great hook, but also filling up that script, the 90 pages or 100 pages with enough other good stuff, some fun dialogue, some good plot twists. So that it isn't with Larry Cohen, at least with his better films, it isn't it's never just the hook, although the hooks are always great. He actually puts some meat into those films. But the, but it's alive. There's two things that really take this uh, 10 notches above where it would be otherwise. And it's the Bernard Herrmann score. Yeah. Which, you know, automatically makes this a legit film. And then it's, of course, the incredible lead performance of John P. Ryan. And it's mm-hmm. something that you'll see throughout Larry Cohen's career is that when he's got a great lead actor, an unhinged lead actor who's willing to commit to the material, which I think most actors would look at and say, well, this is just a horror film and I'm not, you know, even if I have an A game, I'm not bringing it. I'm just... You know, there isn't much for me to work with. And I think some of that is that the the Larry Cohen scripts do give actors things to work with. But I also think he had an incredible talent for finding actors that you can't take your eyes off that are not like anybody else in movies that you're seeing. And I think I'm mostly thinking of John P. Ryan in this movie and, and, you know, to a much lesser degree in the sequel. But then, of course, Michael Moriarty picks up where Ryan leaves off and gives you know, a bunch of incredible performances in some Larry Cohen films that really elevate those films. You, you know, the famous story about uh, Michael Moriarty and Q. So Rex Reed uh, was had seen Q at uh, the Cannes Film Festival and was talking to Sam uh, Ziarkoff, who was, of course, the producer of it. And he said, Rex said to him, you know, I just saw Q. Michael Moriarty gives this incredible method performance in the middle of all this dreck. And uh, Sam Markoff mm-hmm. said to him, the dreck was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Cohen was 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 really managed to be really free of studio influence. I mean, he he wrote and he wrote and directed his stuff. He directed. I mean, he shot on location. He often shot right in his own home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he would go to go, you know, shoot until bedtime. He'd go and write, sign the checks, and go to bed, and wake up, and go down to the go down to the pool and start filming. And th- he managed to like really have very little uh, interference from the outside. Right. And yes, his films did have a kind of a hit and miss aspect to it. But you think about that commitment from the actors, and Moriarty definitely embodied the Larry Cohen spirit, and there's no doubt about it. Um, but John P. Ryan's performance in mm-hmm. It's Alive, I think, is, and I, I got hundreds of them, but I think it's one of the great screen performances that there is. Even in um, It Lives Again, he has beautiful scenes where he's yeah. talking about how he betrayed his own child. Yeah. And it's just heart heartbreaking stuff. But speaking of that as well, in the original It's Alive, this character, Frank Davis, is, is a complex character. I mean... 
he does these beautiful things as he introduces the character on the on the night of the birth. Mm-hmm. He's you know he's in the waiting room and he's joking with the other expectant fathers and you know he's kind of playing with the kind of tension that's in the room and oh he's kibitzing with the nurse about how she has a Gaelic accent and it's just so human and it's it's so personal and and that stuff supposedly I mean the but they used a real nurse and she really had that accent and John Ryan was interested in it and they just included it but if you watch Ryan's performance throughout the level of truth the level of sincerity the the amount of uh, of what's going on inside his eyes are so expressive and it's a heartbreaking character. I mean, he's dealing with so many uh, ego elements, um, you know, masculinity. Um, is, there, is there something, you know, who's to blame for this deformity? This, um, he has this wonderful scene where he says to one of the cops, I think, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a normal son. He's brilliant in school, you know, trying to prove that this, how could this be? You know, mm. I'm, I'm healthy. My wife's healthy. You know, we have a healthy son, you know, and this self-consciousness about um, that I imagine parents who had to go through this would experience. Yeah. You know, no, I- and, and in, the, in the second film, it becomes a cause for possible divorce and certainly a couple that stops caring about each other. Yeah. Which is scary as hell. And I think that that's scary. I think all that's true about John Ryan's performance in It's Alive. But I think that the the other part of the John Ryan experience is that just like Mike and I were talking about last week with Bruce Dern and Silent Running and comparing his character to Jack Nicholson in The Shining, there isn't there isn't that far to go between uh, where he starts and where he finishes. And it's sort of hard to tell in Silent Running when you know, is, does Bruce Dern get crazy because of the circumstances or does he start the movie sort of unhinged? And I feel the same thing is true in a wonderful way with John Ryan and It's Alive. Though That first sequence, even before they get to the hospital, when they're in bed and, and she realizes that she's her contractions are coming and maybe her water breaks, I don't know. But it's a beautiful uh, and rarely seen sort of a moment of, of marital and, and, and parental bliss. I mean, it's really, it's really happy. And then, and John Ryan goes into his son's bedroom and wakes him up with the cat. And there's all this great stuff, but it's John Ryan's presence and this sort of the aura that you feel from this guy that he's not quite right. That there's something, there's just something, there's something different about John P. Ryan. <laughs> and, and so yeah. that colors all that stuff that would, it would be completely domestic tranquility. But there's, but that's John Ryan hitting his son with a cat and it's, there's just something about John Ryan's eyes. <laughs> well, he's got crazy look, eyes. He, I mean, he's when you think about if you look at John Ryan's you know performances, his career, you know, and his his early films were like Five Easy Pieces and mm-hmm. Aramavakian's Cops and Robbers, right? Uh, King of King of Marvin Gardens uh, with Five Easy Pieces. That's the uh, uh, Bob Raffleson films, and he was bizarre and strange and mm-hmm. unique, and you can't take your eyes on him. But later on in movies like uh, The Right Stuff and uh, Hoffa, The Cotton Club, um, he is through the roof. I mean, he gives a thousand percent in every scene he's in. What's amazing is he never, with the exception of It's Alive, he was never the lead of any other movie. But he is amazingly strong 
you know what just occurred to me? He was in the Missouri Breaks, right. which also had Frederick Forrest, who was in it. It lives again, and, and his wife and in, in it lives again. Is and Kathleen yeah. Lloyd was in it as well. Yeah, they all met on. I mean, they did. They all remet on. I, 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 I think they met. I think I Missouri Breaks is before it lives again. Yeah, I think that's seventy six. Maybe it was. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mike, what do you have to say about John P. Ryan and his uh, performance in this movie? He's, uh, you know, I mean, he is mesmerizing and he seems off to me exactly the way Michael Moriarty seems off. And they both seem like uh, strange, poetic Irish souls who uh, are, are somehow broken, but are also uh, coping the best they can. And uh, it's interesting that Larry Cohen plugged into these guys and um he loved his irish leading men he certainly does <laughs> yeah but, but look how his character evolves yeah. into the last and to the last half yeah. hour of the film he even has this conversation with the baby that i didn't understand right you know i didn't yeah. understand I, I was wrong and he's crying well that's and the he, thing and the guilt he, and the- he, he john, john p ryan cries at least three times in it's alive and he cries again and it lives again and when john ryan cries the tears are like these perfectly formed tears and they literally like shoot out of his eyeballs they just go <laughs> boom 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 he, they do they roll down his he's cheeks even like, got you know a, a very particular john p ryan way of crying that's completely in character yeah. with his whole essence you know he's an unusual kind of guy he's got that overbite gives him a kind of an odd yeah. Look, he certainly doesn't look like the kind of guy you def- you see in a movie. Really, he looks like the- and he's got a crazy gait, a crazy way of walking too. Everything about it, he's almost got a Christopher Walken uh, vibe about him. In that, like, you never know how he's going to read a line, and you never My- know how he's going to move through a space. Yeah, I also I really love the scene with his boss, and that was such, yes, yeah, that was so and that's guy stock evocative of. My idea of men in the 70s, like that's where my father worked. That's where, you know, my uncles worked. That's what men did. And these are the kind of heavy conversations they had. And uh, it was it's it was very visceral. It's very evocative of, of Lost in America, too. That whole sequence where Albert oh, Brooks yeah. loses his job in Lost in America. Right. Uh, when, I, when I was watching it, It's Alive this week, I was like, oh, this is wonder if Albert Brooks saw this because he seems to have taken a lot. You know, when Albert Brooks first walks into his office at the beginning of Lost in America, all the the secretaries know him and they're all, you know, smiling at him and urging him on because they all think he's going to get this new job. He's going to be promoted. When John Ryan walks walks into his office, the receptionist gives him a look that reads to me like, this is a crazy man. I don't know what he's doing here Uh right now. And I'm scared of him. But other than that, it's very lost in America. But and, but again, it was also like he also, as intense as he is, it's grounded in reality, and especially that work scene because it's like you're sitting there, and I could feel everybody else going like, "What the fuck is this guy doing here? This guy yeah. just had a monster baby. Get the fuck out of here!" <laughs> yeah, we don't want that bad juju in here. We don't want the kid coming to look for us. Yeah, I don't want to get much further into the into talking about it's alive without talking about the title sequence, which I actually think is the third thing that makes it that elevates it above. The, it's such an amazing title sequence with these. It starts off with when you first see it. To me, anyway, I, I'm thinking, especially because I know this movie is about a baby, that it looks like sperm or something. That you're looking under Clearly, a microscope. Yes. There's all these, yeah. all these, and then it gradually makes you think more of flashlights and 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 then towards the end of the film 
when the cops are in this tunnel in the sewer, it, it almost is a recreation of those title sequence. Yeah. The title sequence and the you title get like sequence, a little bookend. Yeah. Yeah, and the title sequence almost becomes like a flash forward. It isn't really mm-hmm. that the, the shot. And in fact, uh, to listen to Larry Cohen, he says he shot that whole title sequence in his basement with like six flashlights, and he just kept shooting yeah, yeah. them over and over again, and then um, blending them. Um, yeah, but it's but between Super that and the cool. Bernard Herrmann score over the, I mean, you're all you. By the end of that title sequence, you're like, okay, I'm in, I'm in a real movie. Yeah. This is not some bullshit. This is like right. grade A stuff. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the the Bernard Herrmann aspect, which was such a coup for him, and Bernard Herrmann was at a point in his career where he just was fed up with every director and everybody he was working with. He was pissed off at everybody. He still hadn't done. I don't believe he had done Obsession or taxi driver yet even though the film ultimately got re-released in 77 and those and those films then by that point were out yeah so it, it might seem like he had done those after that done it's alive after but he actually did it before he did it between sisters and taxi driver oh wow i forgot he did sisters you know larry cohen just let him do his thing i mean one of the things that bernard herman really liked when he worked with hitchcock is that he could hear all the instruments, you know, and Hitchcock you played the music up, and the sound design of Hitchcock's films were uh, were the the score in a lot of cases. I mean, he did use sound a little more consciously and innovatively than some did, but he really allowed that music to uh, create the environment in the in his films in a way that Scorsese didn't, and it gave uh, um. Bernard Herrmann a lot of uh, anxiety because of that balance between sound effects and and music. He, he he didn't like that, and I know that he was really verbal about it. But yeah, I mean, you see that opening sequence and you hear that music, and it's and it's very similar in some ways to the score of Taxi Driver. It reminds me of it. Mm-hmm. It's very just it's upsetting and disturbing, and and you know you really feel like you're in for it. And yeah, so by the time you come into those first shots, which, you know, compared to how we expect movies to look today, they're kind of muddy looking and the movie's kind of monochromatic and it's almost documentary in, in, in its visual style because it's, it's very, the camera's locked down a lot, um, except for when they do the baby's point of view, which is a thesis study in itself, because once you take on the point of view of a character, you're also ask having the audience step into the point of view of that character, whether it's the op- opening credits of Jaws and you're the shark seeking, or in the case of the baby putting you, it, it, the film is constantly giving you these other perspectives on the same thing. Because like I say, the baby becomes the victim. I mean, it's being, it's being hunted. It's, it's even in a very, in a terribly heartbreaking way, it's, the father is hunting his own child at some point in the film, and it's um, it's very upsetting. Yeah, but and the other, but the, but along those lines, the other thing that it, the other the other position it puts you in when you're in the when you're seeing through the eyes of the baby in all three films is it puts you in the position of being somebody who walked into a 3D movie Complete. without your glasses. That's all it looks like is, is the especially the 80s 3D, the supervision 3D. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cross eye. It made me wish I had a split. pair of those glasses, and I was going to try it out. Yes. <laughs> so we should talk a bit about the look of the movie, though, because something I, I observed. So 
so this is the copyright is 1973 which means it may have been shot in 72 so it came out as we have experienced it's alive in 77 which is when the incredible tv commercial came out and with the commercial was a baby carriage and camera swoops in on it cinerama released it in 74 and it was in double features right. and things like that and they didn't have that advertisement right. with right. it. Right. So that's why I'm saying the, the the it's alive that we know as it's alive, the experience of it is from seventy seven. Um Yeah. Exactly. And the T V commercial I mean, immediate impact. Uh it was the baby carriage and the uh, little uh, lullaby music and the announcer saying, There's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. It's alive. Now I will say we talked about a PG movie as a kid. I was very scared by horror movie commercials. Very scared. That one never scared me. And I'm the oldest of oh, a yeah? bunch of cousins and stuff. Like so, so these were kids down to like age three. None of us were scared by it. We all loved it. We knew we weren't going to be allowed to see it, but uh, uh. we all and we would we would like cheer when it came on. I also have cousins that are named Davis, so it was pretty uh. awesome to have the Davis baby. Be an issue. You see, the It's Alive commercial got kind of grouped in with the Suspiria well, that, commercial. No, no, that was, that and... gave me a heart attack at age eight. Like, I needed, like, a, I, I had to call the EMTs. Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the was Dead. another terrifying yeah. commercial. Magic was fucking terrifying. Magic. Yeah, Magic's the other one, yeah. But, Kush, don't you remember the Dawn of the Dead one where the the, the elevator doors open? And well, it's the a crawl. Elevator doors it's open the, you know, in 1968. So you just kind of relaxed. Yes. Then the elevator doors open and the monsters run through. Yeah, but no, no, no. The, the, the Suspiria is still the most terrifying thing that has ever existed. So, well, it's a, a, Suspiria and and uh, it's alive were special shoots specifically for That's the commercials. That's very too. cool. I love that scenes yeah, from the yeah. film. Uh, and they, you know, they had nothing to do with neither of them had anything to do with yeah. the movie. I mean, yeah, you know, you could see how roses fit into right. Suspiria if you watch the film a hundred times. Right. But you know, no, but it certainly um, conveys the essence of the female madness and the. Uh, don't relax the the mixture of beauty and death and carnage and the sudden shock that truly when was that since this was the same summer so yeah i'm laughing about it's alive and the davis baby and then when i found out in my head the baby lived in the sewer that to me was the funniest fucking thing that ever existed mm-hmm. <laughs> well that's the baby goes to hide right. in the sewer. But, but mike i thought you were going to talk about the look of the movie and, i'm going um, to so okay go ahead. in 1972 so, so so it comes out in 77 t- t- wide. 1977 looks a lot different from 1973 to the point that um, you have a lot of that, how the late 60s mm-hmm. actually kind of looks like the 50s. And mm-hmm. like the the suddenly, like the one woman that's out that sees the body looks like a go-go dancer. She's got a beehive yeah. hairdo. By yeah. 77, yeah, yeah. that was over. We didn't see any of that. The kid right. has that amazing psychedelic wallpaper in his room with, like, the butterfly and the love Yeah, the love. Sculpture. He's got the love logo. Yeah. The 60s love icon. Yeah. And of, even right. the fact that I always noticed this, like, in Death Wish, like, nurses wore those, like, goofy hats. Like, they had those little uniforms with the little dainty nurse hats and stuff. Yeah. So, um, that, so it, it's sort of like a, a movie out of time. And I wondered if... 77 audiences picked up on that. Right? Probably not. It's too close to it. I mean, I, I, I was um, 12 years old and my, my, my parents were divorced and I got to spend all my time at the movie theater and I used to walk there. I walked there along a very busy, dangerous highway. 
uh, I don't. They wouldn't let us kids do this today. But um, at 12 years old, I certainly didn't notice. The walk home was really difficult. I was afraid. I, I ran past bushes because sure. I was afraid that the baby was going to jump out of the bushes. When it was initially released in theaters in '74, and they they advertised it very badly, they were like, I think all they said was, "It's alive." Um, the original poster doesn't have the baby uh, bassin- bassinet or whatever. It's it's. They say it wound up being like the the the, the second feature in double features, or, or the third to, feature on triple bills too. If that happened today, that version would have been, would have come out on video right. or something like that. It, there wouldn't have been a re-release of it three years later with a completely new approach. I mean, no. Th- this is a, something that's really specific to this time period. Yeah. And the fact that it sat like that until it was, apparently it was a hit in like... Singapore uh, or something like that. Singapore, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. The number one film so in then, Singapore. And, the, and then there was the the guy, the like they had a new changeover at Warner Brothers. Yeah. The guy that had been at Cinerama releasing now took over distribution at Warner Brothers, and they came up with this advertisement and put it on TV and saturated the TV with commercials. You know, and, and that's a whole other topic too. That's interesting is uh, when television began to advertise movies and how that affected the box office. Yeah, uh, Jaws is part of that story. In addition to the sort of the handheld baby's perspective footage there's a bunch of handheld stuff in the first 20 minutes at the hospital but then there's also a bunch of really nice sort of uh camera moves that that seem to involve tracks or dollies or you know stuff and there's some really beautiful nighttime photography first of all i love it when people get lit at night in cars just by having like flashlights under their faces this is what i did when when i made my senior film and had people driving around at night but it's totally what happens and it's alive it's like there's just like these little portable lights that are you know shooting up and it's uh-huh. and it's interesting because it's no, it's nothing like you would see in real life if you were driving around or looking at people in cars but it's that perfect sort of movie reality like it totally feels right that you're seeing people illuminated the way they are in cars at night mm-hmm. but even more than that there's this one sequence where all the cop cars are, are arriving at the school at night to because the, the, there's news that the baby is is in there and it seems like it's just past magic hour. I mean, because it reads like, you know, early night, late evening. You can still see a little bit of the sky, but the but all the beautiful red flashing lights from the police cars uh, really pop out of the screen. And I think it's so beautiful. You never see films that are color graded that way anymore. You know, everything, all the saturation is taken out of everything and everything turns into teal and... Uh, orange or whatever but i i I, I thought it was yeah but i thought those cop cars at night and it's alive were some of the most beautiful shots of cop cars at night that i've ever seen i mean what i know about with fenton hamilton was that he was an older guy but daniel pearl who shot texas chainsaw massacre was on the camera crew and wound up doing a lot of second unit stuff and a lot of pickup stuff and then on uh it lives again I think Fenton um, Hamilton is credited as cinematographer, but the majority of It Lives Again was actually shot by Daniel Pearl, and then Daniel Pearl apparently shot Island of a Lot. Yes, I saw his credit. But Daniel Pearl was was younger, but Daniel Pearl was younger and was a little more open to some of the things that Larry Cohen wanted to do. And Larry Cohen just worked so instinctively and off the cuff, and he didn't, didn't really care about the way that things were usually done. 
And apparently his actors really liked that because they say that on the on the day on their days off they all wanted to hang out on set and see what was going on and, and see what Larry Cohen was coming up with that day and that apparently he was a really appealing uh, guy to work with. Well, but the other but the thing is, my understanding was that Fenton Hamilton was a grumpier, uh, older guy. But the thing about hanging out on set with Larry Cohen was 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 that the set was Larry Cohen's house most of the time. So Larry. Larry would w- m- m- majority would work it, yeah. all day at his house, and then he wouldn't have to drive home. And he he said he was able to get a lot more done by shooting movies at his house because he'd send everybody out at the end of the day, and then he'd put on his producer's cap and do all the business side of things that he needed to do yeah. at, at the house. Well, he was apparently shot. I think it was it's it lives again, maybe, and oh no, no, it was it's it's alive and the sequel to Black Caesar. Hell up Ella in Harlem, Harlem yeah, shot at the same time. Shot them yeah. at the same time, yeah. So. That's a seven-day week for for that guy. I mean, he really. I mean, talk about living and breathing it, right? I mean, he he slept at the studio. He slept on the set. He, you know, he woke up seven days a week, and his films didn't have the studio peering over his head. I don't know if you could say, you know, there's Larry Cohen's style, but I could imagine seeing a movie and saying, you know, this kind of reminds me of a Larry Cohen movie. I think that there is something auteurish in the way that he worked and because of the body of work that he created if you look at the body of work the the good and the bad you could see you know who he was as a filmmaker and what he was bringing to the table that was unique and and original and um you know and i think you know that that look that you're talking about it is it seems it it is artificial it's like the in cars being lit that way from the inside and stuff, as if there's like bright lights in the dashboard so we could see everybody's face, but they never be able to drive that way. Right. Um, this was partly what what I was talking about earlier with some of the films that I borrowed from you, where I would really get to see that people were working with budgets or with ex, you know experiences that they weren't as seasoned as other filmmakers were. They were. In a lot, kind of improvising, making things up as they went along, and a lot of times they came out with something really great. Not always. Sometimes it was a, a it tanked, but a lot of times it came out with this really original feeling work, and with it's alive and it lives again. And other Larry Cohen stuff, you know, God told me to, and uh, some of his stuff's really smart, like deep. I mean, it's alive and it lives again. You can break. There's a lot to break down. Too much for us to cover, uh, in terms of the content of the story, uh, and things that the the film manages to say, uh, whether it's like a, like I say, it's on purpose or not. And maybe part of it has to do with this 1972-ish through 1977 bridge, and then. 1978 it's a lot it lives again it was the very next year yeah that's why i feel like island of alive is a is another part of larry cohen's career and it's a another subject matter and another approach not that it's not entirely uninteresting especially if you throw your critics hat off and you put on your let's see what larry is going for i think it's delight i love i love really appreciate it i i i really liked it yeah I, I, I like it more I than it lives it again. On cable, me too. I really had a, a Jeff. A you're hoot. you're gonna yeah. you're gonna defend it lives again at some point tonight. But I I want to say about 
Island of the Alive is that interestingly, it's it it really feels like it's the biggest budget of the three movies, even though it was actually made for a direct you know the direct to video division of Warner yeah. Brothers. Like there was no there was no ever ne- never any intention to release it in theaters, and yet they seems like they threw more money at it than both of the first two films combined, at least as far as you know locations and and the amount of cast. I mean, there's some. And and there's some great stop motion stuff with the babies in that. Oh, it's um, the best. The stop motion baby is the greatest. Yeah, but that gives me gives us a, a, a an opportunity to talk about something we haven't talked about. Rick Baker, the Rick baby. Baker, yes. And the fact that in the first two it was not stop motion; it was basically a puppet or a grown up in a costume. Right. Yeah. You know, we hear we hear Larry Cohen talking about you know they hid it in the dark so you couldn't see how fake it looked and things like that. He also pontificates and rightly about um you know how you don't want to give it all away and how you want to hint at it and reveal it later he compared it to jaws how you didn't see the shark and all that like you can tell those stories the fact is that that kind of approach is going to work or it's not and it really does work in it's alive um the fact that you are trying to see this creature they all are and that your your glimpses of it are fleeting because it's always on the move. Um, that baby's so much more convincing because for me because it's actually physically there. And then I was thinking about the work of of Nicotero and Berger who are doing the Walking, Walking Dead. Dead show. Yeah, but they but, but they the did, level of yeah. they did know, the last they, bunch of Romero they, stuff. The I level Nicotero did. I think I, mean, he I, did I catch their the names yeah. in surprising places doing doing bullet wounds and not always horror stuff. But the but the work that they do now for Walking Dead is so above and beyond. I mean it's it's so detailed and it's so real and it's so exquisite and you've but by this point we've seen heads chopped in thirds and jaws ripped off and there's an amusement value maybe if they can come up with clever scenarios to do that in. But the impact of the of the monsters themselves is diminished in a way that, you know, you experience in the Dawn of the Dead commercial with people with blue makeup on their face, you know, rushing at the camera. We never saw this before. And it's so fast and it's so sudden and it's so unexpected. And now it's really hard to be affected by a monster, you know, and we've seen a lot of monsters now and they're done amazingly well but they don't have the dramatic impact for me that something like the It's Alive baby had. Yeah. And yeah, Rick Baker was, this was a breakout opportunity for him, obviously. And you probably know a lot about it, I imagine. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it. I'm sure you want to say something about Fuck it. Rick Baker, I want to say. No, I don't. Yeah, know. Rick he's Baker's all right. He had made shock, uh, uh, shock, schlock the same year. Uh, oh, no, a year before with ah. the uh, John Landis movie. It was his first movie. Right. And then he did uh, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, um, the TV movie with Cicely Tyson where he made her look like she was 100 years old. And that was really his ticket mm-hmm. to the mainstream big time. And in between those two, it's alive. Beautifully said. That's it. I want to talk Thank a little you. bit about Larry Cohen and his place, his place among the other uh, genre directors that we all grew up 
loving. Well, and okay, I, I want to make a point here before we do this, because you're talking about him as, a, as an artist. Though I want to talk about this weird middle period of Larry Cohen. Okay, Cole. yeah. First of all, I was surprised that he only has 21 directorial credits, which is a lot. But you get the sense somehow you think it's like you know like Jess Franco or so. There's going to be 150, but he wrote a lot of things. So yeah, um, yeah. So you have uh, so he comes out. Bone to me is a, really close to a masterpiece. That is one of the great. Like I mean, to me, it's like up there with the swimmer and and Aramavakian's end of the road. Just a, a great suburban nightmare. The American dream is is a complete. You know, this is tearing the guts out of that and X-raying it and lighting it all on fire. And uh, weirdly, you know, much more to me, much more controlled and uh, artificial than his other movies, but in a very effective way. Um, then he had the two excellent uh, Black Caesar and Hell Up and Home, great black exploitation movies. It's alive. God told me to nothing else like it. Really, one of the. I mean, in terms of like grindhouse science fiction, one of the fucking best. Like nothing compares. The weird private files of J. Edgar Hoover, which I watched the other yeah. day, bizarre, because it's not like Machine Gun Kelly or, or like a, a Bonnie and Clyde ripoff. It's just kind of this drama, and it's like for who? <laughs> you know, so, uh, Full Moon High is it's okay, uh, and then Q. So, and Q. Um, that was my first Larry Cohen. Do you remember when they were shooting Q and? Uh, they had the helicopter flying around the Chrysler building in the middle of the morning during like the morning commute, and they hadn't uh, told anybody or gotten any permits or anything, and they just did it. Yeah, and they were shooting guns off of the off of the Chrysler. Yeah, building. they had machine they had guys with machine guns shooting at a helicopter, and I remember the reports on rambling with gambling, saying they're just shooting a movie, and I was very excited yeah. by that. Um, and do you guys remember the ad campaign? The queue is here. Uh, yeah. Q is coming. Q is coming. Q is coming. Q is here. So, posters. Oh, something like wasn't it like Q? That's the only sound you'll be able to get out yes. before it yeah, kills right. you or yes, something yes. to that effect. That was what. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but they were just they were stenciled on the sidewalk. I can't remember exactly, but that was one of them. But it was stenciled on the sidewalk. Q is coming, and then all over the subway they just said Q is Q is coming. These posters, and it was in script, so it looked like a two. So it was like it was weird looking. Then when they, they finally had the poster. With the incredible, I think it's Bars Vallejo painting. It just said, Q is here. And then at the, I remember it, I saw it at the Midwood Theater. And it, on the marquee, it said, Q is here. I was very excited for that. So, yeah. Um, now, then we go into this weird middle period here. So, 84, 80, both in 84, Perfect Strangers and Special Effects. And this is where suddenly, like, Larry Cohen is in with, like, the downtown art scene. Yeah, because uh, Perfect Strangers is an erotic thrill with Anne Carlisle from uh, Liquid Sky, and who's the guy in that? Oh, it's the guy from Smithereens, Brad Reen from Smithereens, and then special effects has uh, Eric Bogosian yeah. and Zoe uh, Zoe Lund at that point. I'm old now, but well, she's dead. Uh, Tamerless from Ms. Forty Five. Yeah, and this is when the weird thing that was going on suddenly. Larry Cohn was being treated like this art film director, but like by like horror zines that I was reading, the Phantom of the Movies column in the Daily News, um, the Village Voice. And then that led to the Research Incredibly Strange Films book, where he got a much longer interview than all the other directors, probably because he had a lot more to say. 
But, uh, you know, they were like completely blown away by uh, God told me to. And mm-hmm. so it was this but, strange Larry Cohen moment where I guess I guess Abel Ferrar actually took up that mantle. Like this is the guy with one foot in, you know, some Soho gallery and another one in a puddle of puke in Times Square. <laughs> and, you know, Abel sort of rode that longer. And then Larry made the stuff, which to me is now that's an example of a very conscious attempt to mute to merge uh, horror and satire or social commentary. I mean, clearly, mm-hmm. and I, I like the stuff. It's good. I mean, I got that sense with Q as well, but we can come, we'll come yeah. back to that. You keep talking. Yeah. And then, and then uh, the It's Alive 3 and Return to Salem's Lot. And then Deadly, Deadly Illusion, I haven't seen. I got to see that. But, the, you know, another thing to track with Cohen is what he was writing in right. this time well, period that's the other as thing, well. Because yeah. he, he wrote Guilty as Sin for, for Sidney mm-hmm. Lumet, and uh, he wrote for Roland Jaffe, and um, he wrote... For Ferrara, he wrote the script for Body Snatchers, right. which I know that that film didn't reach its uh, potential, but I know that there's a connection there. He wrote the Maniac Cop movies, which phenomenal. Well, the yeah. second one's phenomenal. We've talked about Ben and I but, saw the first one together, uh, and I watched it again this year, and I, I it was better than I remembered. Um, but but not as good as Maniac Cop two because Maniac Cop two has an amazing last half hour. It's a masterpiece. But, he also wrote I the Jury, which is awesome. Yeah, the Armand the Santi one. But I, I don't want to gloss over Jeff. You said this. You said, oh, he wrote for Sidney Lumet guilty. You know, he, yes, he wrote, yes, Sidney Lumet directed guilty as sin. But I mean, nobody would think of that as a as a Sidney Lumet, uh, you know, as one of his Sidney Lumet movie. Well, Sid, you know, Sidney Lumet movie. Sidney Lumet's career is yeah. very is a very interesting is. and strange it one. Is. Yeah, you know, and th- and there are a handful of filmmakers. They get they're really strong for a period, and then they have this. Mm-hmm. Usually in the '80s, it seems, yeah. where there's a very muddled. Robert Altman was the same way, and then somewhere, I don't know so much for a Lumet. He did do some interesting stuff towards the very end. The yeah. end, but I mean, Altman bounced back in the '90s and did a lot. Some of his most interesting stuff after this kind of lull in the '80s, where whatever whatever he was doing, it didn't didn't translate through that time. Mike, you blame cocaine on everything, right? I do. Yeah, I think the '80s was really severely derailed by cocaine in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like an interesting thing to see yeah. because it's reflected in a lot of the filmmakers of that time period, and you got the the De Palma, Pacino, Oliver Stone yeah. kind of um, triangle, and um, where you wind up getting really interesting films, but they are right. bad shit. It's like putting yeah. great. It's like putting great stuff in a blender, yeah. and then turning the blender on, but keep. Forgetting to put the lid Sitting on, on the and then you got a, a lot of great no. stuff all over the place. Well, yeah, put it, it on cocaine speed. And and so the the genre, especially but, the horror genre directors that we grew up idolizing, or I did, and I'm I'm speaking for you two as well. In the 70s and 80s, true. Romero and Carpenter and Cronenberg um, uh, are are the or I would think for me anyway were the top mm-hmm. three the the guys who I obsessively followed yeah. and it delivered masterpiece after masterpiece for me. Now. I don't. I never thought that Larry Cohen rose to their level, but I do feel like he is well above some other, uh, you know, sort of second tier uh, or third tier like uh, Wes Craven, Toby Hooper, um, but but uh, the Hannon Lauder. Okay, Hannon <laughs> Lauder. Yeah, but that's a whole. You know, H. G. <laughs> Lewis. Sure, Herschel Gordon Lewis. He's better than. Yeah. But 
I want to say that watching these uh, It's Alive movies, the the one of those guys that reminded that this that these reminded me of the most actually is Cronenberg. I feel like Cronenberg's early films, Sh- uh, Shivers and uh, Rabid, feel very much like It's Alive. Like I, I feel those are kindred spirit sure. movies in subject matter and also feel sort of the way they're shot. There's that scene in It's Alive, which is a, a masterpiece, a classic with the milkman, where the milkman is getting killed by right. mm-hmm. the baby in the truck and uh, milk right. and then blood are pouring out of the back of the milk truck. It's right. almost like looks like the effect is milk, almost yeah. like he's been gone into a meat grinder and then you're seeing like the, the output. Right. And that's very much like a scene. Mm-hmm. There's a scene. It's I think it's in The Brood where Art Hindle uh, uh in his kitchen, uh, he discovers that somebody's opened up the refrigerator and the, there's milk and orange juice that has spilled all over the floor. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like that mm-hmm. mixture of blood mm-hmm. and milk in, in this one. But I wonder, here's what, here's my question to you guys. Do you think that it's, that it's Larry Cohen's, the business side of Larry Cohen and the fact that he was seemed seemingly first and foremost as much as he was a director and even more as much as he was a writer he was a producer and he was somebody who was interested in and concentrated on the business end of things and was you know never really called attention to himself so much as an artist and but but also seemed like somebody who was really in it to win it as far as producing and getting his films distributed and making money in a way that you don't see those other guys doing. And do you think that that has sort of diminished his reputation as, as like an auteur or an artist? I don't think so. Uh, He says in the incredibly strange films book, he says, you know, I'm a paperback novelist. He says, you know, I, I, uh, you know, the movies that play in the big theaters that studios put out, he says, those are the best sellers. I, I create paperback novels. That's who my audience is. And I think, you know, you, you hit on something interesting with the business side of it because it does bring to mind Roger Corman, who himself, you know, was an incredible, incredibly gifted as a filmmaker, but became so consumed with just the business end of it that that's completely lost. And, you know, he was no longer, you know, able to pull that off as a filmmaker. Um, he's not remembered right. as that. He's remembered as the a director right. who... Gave, you know, gave uh, away to a lot right. of those filmmakers. So that's very interesting. So I think I, I like the paperback novelist thing. And I, I think that is his place. And whereas the other, you know, Romero and and Carpenter and Cronenberg certainly always swinging for the bleachers, always trying to blow minds. You know, Larry was trying to, you know, give you a good time and get you to the next part and work some other stuff in it. Well, you know, when he could. I think a very defining moment in Larry Cohen's Ouvre, if I may, is when uh, Moriarty screams Edom. Right. You know, it captures the humor. It captures the mm-hmm. terror. I mean, it, it has everything all at once. It's it's hilarious. It's over the top. It's 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 uh, captures true madness, uh, and so it actually does. You know, it is somewhat even frightening. Well, and I feel like his movies are personal in a very unusual way they appear on the surface to be this genre but i think that and maybe it's not personal like i'm delving into issues that are important to me but i think he really puts his heart and soul into the making of these movies and you really sense the filmmaker and the 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 power of the storyteller i think when a storyteller knows their story really really well that you as a listener or a viewer whatever you are can surrender yourself to it 
and follow them wherever they go because they clearly know the story they're telling and with such confidence and and mastery that you don't you the critical side of you can fall away and you can follow through i think cohen's career is hit and miss to some degree but i think that's a matter of taste as well you know i think when you say oh i didn't like that one well that's you saying your own opinion about it but that's not you talking about the movie itself what the movie is what cohen was doing where it fits in what else was going on there yeah you didn't like it but i don't care about that i i'm more interested in <laughs> i think there's another one of those moments that you're talking about with the michael moriarty and edom thing and and uh and q i think there i think there's exactly one of those moments at the end of it's alive when john p ryan's got his baby in his arms and he finally has learned to sort of love this thing but the cops are surrounding him and they're saying put him down we're gonna shoot him we're gonna kill him and he does this brilliant move he throws him at the do- at the doctor who's been driving insane <laughs> and lets the cops shoot the baby and the doctor um that's right. that's a classic larry cohen payoff he did have an ensemble cast his his ver- version of the mercury theater you know james D- dixon and yeah, james andrew dixon. duggan yeah. and a handful of other direct- and, and and even the actors that he used in small roles who came from television and William Wellman, who plays the the friend who they drop the kid off with in right. uh, It's Alive, who, who was William Wellman Jr., the, the son of the director of Wings and Star is Born, Public Enemy. But he was like known for, known for like the TV Western soaps and things like that, that a lot of those actors, Andrew Duggan as well, came out of that kind of background. He was in Incredible Mr. Limpet and stuff like that. But Andrew Duggan wound up being part of that ensemble. He was in Black Caesar and It's Alive and It Lives Again and J. Edgar Hoover and yeah. well, Return to Salem's Lot. I'm so glad that you brought up William Willman Jr. because I wanted to mention one of my delights at seeing the film this time around was noticing that his character has vanity plates on his vehicle in, the, in It's Alive and it's W-A-W-J-R. But that the vehicle is this totally utilitarian station wagon that looks like the thing that Michael Myers is driving around in Halloween. It cracks me up so much that William Wellman Jr. had this shitty fucking uh, station wagon with vanity plates. He must have had a bunch of kids, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very funny. But And then James Dixon would, is the actor who was in all three It's Alive yeah, movies. Yeah, he's great. As well as Talk about Irish. Q and God Told Me To, yeah, and Black Jesus. Caesar. And, you know... I don't know what he did outside of um, Larry Cohen's films, but I think of him as like this sort of staple because of of how many films I saw him in, and he mm-hmm. was like, well, he was a behind the scenes guy. You know, if you couldn't get movies. Gene Hackman, he was behind that. He he was like he he worked. Was he? Yes, he he was he was kind of like, what's that guy who they recently did a documentary about who was Kubrick's assistant for all those years? Yeah. Uh, he's like that guy to Leon Vitale. Yeah, he's like the Leon Vitale of Larry Cohen verse. He uh, he was involved in all. I didn't yeah. know that. Well, yeah. that's interesting because because he was definitely there like all the way through. Yep. That Andrew Duggan is a really interesting actor too, and he was in Seven Days in May and some some other films outside of that as well. But um, but that whole generation of actors, I guess they would be considered B actors right yeah. I mean, people wouldn't consider them to be the top level and yet you know who, who could you have gotten that would be better than those guys right nobody i mean there's the there's that stuff there is there seems to be a style uh of uh, some some artificiality in the acting styles 
Well, and that's, this is the other thing that I think that Cohen has in common with David Cronenberg is I think that both of those guys, their best films rise and fall on the lead performances they get out of actors who, who uh, no matter who they are, seem to give their best, do their best work with those two directors. I mean, obviously, John P. Ryan and Michael Moriarty give their career best performances in Larry Cohen films. And but think of all the David Cronenberg lead actors who give their best performances. I mean, Jeremy Irons mm-hmm. is a great actor, but he's never but been Cronenberg's. Yeah. He's yeah. never been near as good as he is in Dead Ringers. Um, and, you know, and Christopher Walken, I think far and away his best performance on screen is in Dead Zone. And, and so I think it's interesting that the, the, the but two. But if you of look at when you look at Cronenberg's career, which I know you have, and you see from, you know, from the Dead Zone and the Fly forward, there's a tremendous evolution in his ability to work with actors. Uh, cinematographer, the production—they're uh, beautiful. I mean, some of the some of my favorite filmed shot films were Cronenberg's stuff. You know, Dead Ringers Forward, and uh, you know his work is very complex, very thematic oriented. So is Cohen's, but in a more broad, more fun, more loose. Um, you know, Cronenberg's got a is on a on a mission. You know, he's got something very yeah. specific that he's got to say, and this is the this is his his tool, cinema to say this. Uh, Lynch, in a way, you know, he could David Lynch could be doing a a photograph or a sculpture or a painting or a film. It's he's something he wants to express, and these are the tools that are best to express, you know, that thing. Cohen seemed much more like a working filmmaker, a working director. And yes, he, I don't, like, I know he, he was the producer of his films. Like I said, he'd go sign the checks and go to bed. But I don't think he liked the business aspect of it so much. But I also think that's why he took, t- took it on himself so that he could, you know, it wouldn't, it would be still within his control. And he could still make the movies that he wanted to make. And even Return to Salem's Lot and It's Alive 3 were, were choices he, he made over other things that he was being offered. Um, I think they asked him to make Return to Salem's Lot and if you want, you can make an It's Alive movie with that kind of thing. Yeah. And you know that's, that sounds like the kind of guy Larry Cohen was. He'd be like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. Not like, what's my purpose as a filmmaker? What am I trying to say? What shall I do in my career at this point? I think that the opportunities that those two projects, you know, flashed in front of his face were irresistible. And I think he wrote, he rose to them. Whether people liked them or not is once again, I think not part of the question. The question is to look at what he's, what he's doing at this point in career. What has he chosen to do? What is he interested in? And, uh, and you can see, you can really see how, what, how pure a filmmaker he was. I think he might have been written off to some degree. But when you look at, like I said, when you look at the body of work, it's undeniable. It's like there are so many films here that I know. And there are so many, and so many of them that I like. And this guy has had an influence on me. You sure. know, and, and how I look at movies, how I talk about movies. And uh, it's surprising in a way because he just seems so, you know... You wouldn't think it would be. You wouldn't think he would have that kind of power. Um, there's something so understated about him, and you hear him in interviews, and you see pictures of him, and you know, the kind of guy you would just sort of pass on the street and not think about it. And yet, 
Yeah. He's a visionary. Well, and he reminds me uh, 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 of Carpenter the most in that way, in that, you know, they're... They think of themselves as craftsmen, as working guys, and they don't. They're very. They're loath to talk about their films in terms of yeah. themes and art, and and they're you know if you listen to them on commentary tracks, they're really just talking about, oh, this is how we got this shot, and this was you know this is the lens we used, and uh, you know these are the, some fun stories about what happened on the set, but they're not. They don't sound like they're like interested in exploring the subtext of anything. No, but it's not to say that their films don't no, do it anyway. of course. Absolutely. All right, boys. Absolutely. It lives again. I'm pushing <laughs> okay. us forward. Yeah, I was going to end the episode, but you want to talk about the other two for a couple minutes? Sure. At least we could say it lives Yeah, We could at least talk about it. We can it have a fight about it lives again, because I think Mike and I, I, I haven't talked well, to Mike. I don't want to fight. No, we're not okay. going to fight. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I mean, I, I didn't like it when I first saw it, and I didn't like it again. <laughs> it I'll say uh, I think it's yeah, the I, weak link. I, I adore it. <laughs> I saw it in the theater. Right. Yeah, that meant. And that I was so, sure. as excited as as yeah. can be. I love the opening credits. Personally, I really like Frederick Forrest's performance. I find him be, and he didn't get too many leading roles either. He had a few, one from the heart, uh, Hammett, but he. he um, well, but I, I just I, wonder what, how he fucked up. Frederick Forrest because he's awesome and uh, I like he him. Should have been a leading man. Yeah, I don't like him in this movie. I don't think there's any. I don't know if there's anything there on the page for him to work with. But yeah. that's the that's my problem mostly with it. Lives again is that it's got John Ryan there, but it's mostly about Frederick Forrest and his wife. And they their performances are not interesting to me. Their characters are not interesting. I get it that they're going through this interesting mm-hmm. phase in their marriage, and that's true in theory. I think that's interesting material. I just don't think. Anybody makes anything of it in this movie? Well, for me, I mean, I, I think the opening scene at the party is really brilliant because I love this That's idea. Great. That of, is great. Of you're having this party and it's the end of the night and everybody's going and there's one guy still sitting on the couch and neither, and neither of them Ryan. know who he is. <laughs> and if anyone neither want... of them know who this guy is. I thought you invited him. No, who is he? I don't know. He's here. He's sitting on our couch. And, um, and I really thought like for me personally, um, the relationship with Frederick Forrest and Kathleen Lloyd uh, was a significant part of this movie. It is, and how and how they came were come how they came apart because of what happens to their child, and how you know there's a scene where he's like, "You don't want to even want to touch me anymore," and they're sleeping in separate beds, and who's to blame here? And you know, now that I'm thinking of it. There's a whole lot of thematic kind of approaches to the ideas of of trust and 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 family. You know, her mother betrays her in that movie. Uh, her mother is like spying on her, and there's this idea of parental betrayal that runs through both of the movies that I find really interesting. Um, another thing about you know the I mean the couple a couple losing attraction to each other is I think a scary for an adult is a scary idea, you know? And I think to see that as part of a, of a horror film is very interesting way to get into material because I get overwhelmed actually, honestly, when I think about it lives again, because it deals with the, the idea of celebrity because Frank Davis is a celebrity because of his, the death of his child. Mm -hmm. 
the press is very interested in this new couple. Uh, Frederick Forrest's character is, you know, goes out at the end to pass on this message. The cop, Dixon, from the first film, is called to come into this case because he's the only cop who knows about this baby. And everybody knows that this cop was the one who dealt with not only the Davis baby, but the Seattle baby, which turned out to be the child of John Marley's character, who is seemingly someone who's a threat to the baby. And it's really hard to tell if he's there to protect the parents, protect the child, kill the child. And I, it's a busy, I think it's a busy film in terms of content. It deals with this right to privacy, uh, this concept of being watched, of being of pursued, of um, the real hospital is a dangerous place. They have to take them to this makeshift hospital. You know, interesting actor in there is um, Constantine. Eddie Constantine. Eddie Constantine. Yeah. <laughs> Very surprising to see him in that movie. Well, um, we were talking, and, you know, Mike and I were talking about some other movie where it was, I think it was Roller Coaster, where we were talking about how nice it is to see a movie that isn't that isn't theoretically about old people like Cocoon, but is populated with people over the age of 45. And and yeah. it's totally true in these Larry Cohen movies, too. But almost especially in It Lives Again, it gave me a panic between John Marley and Eddie Constantine. He has them doing so much physical stuff. They're climbing <laughs> in and out of that fucking truck. They're walking up and down very steep, dangerous looking stairs all the time. I kept thinking, how did somebody not break their hip on this movie? I thought it was a wonderful suspense scene in the beginning where uh, she goes into labor and they keep trying to call Frank Davis and he's out outside at the truck at yeah. that moment that they're calling. Yeah. And it's kind of classic, but it's very frustrating. Uh, you know, it's very effective, I think. And um, the death of Frank Davis is a very interesting part of the film because he's protecting the baby. He's saving the baby. He's He's teaching this couple how they can care for their baby and when it's the baby that kills frank but frank is like talking to the baby while it's killing he's trying to keep it calm he's trying to say see you don't want to you don't want to scare people you know he's and in a way he almost allows the baby to kill him because that's what the baby is going to do and he's just takes it very calmly in a way but he always seems to be he still seems to remain compassionate to the monster and once again, it seems to be a film that's about trying to save the monster, trying to protect the monster, and maybe even asks, who is the monster? Is the grandmother a monster? Is you know the, the one that's spying on her own daughter? Um, and, and there's that beautiful speech from the original It's Alive about how Frank always thought that in Frankenstein... Right. The monster right. was called Frankenstein, and then he realized, no, Frankenstein was the one that created the monster. Yeah, and that, and somehow that got mixed up, and you know, it culturally got gets mixed up, and there's something very worth exploring about that line getting dissolved. I think I think you're right. I think on paper, it lives again has a lot of interesting things in it, and when you tell the story of it lives again, yeah. it yeah, sounds no, pretty you, good. Yeah. Totally. I think in, in execution, a lot of what you just said kind of falls flat for me. But 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 it's my passion that makes it sound yeah. good. No, you're, 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 the, you're the John P. Ryan of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what an Island honor. of the Alive, I thought it was a hoot. 
a good time. <laughs> I think it's great. I think Michael Moriarty, I could just watch him in a Larry yeah. Cohen movie forever. Um, and I did appreciate the larger budget. I did appreciate the stop motion. I I thought the uh, the opening scene in the courtroom is is fantastic. What's his name? Yeah. Garrett Graham is in it. That's Garrett hilarious. Graham. Yeah, yeah. is the uh, prosecutor. And, and, yeah, and uh, the judge. Who's that? Who's that actor? Uh, oh, I can't think of his name now. Shoot. But Garrett Graham, the no. previous year had been in uh, Terror Vision, which is also great. He gives a great performance in that, and similar energy. But once again, the third film deals with, you know, love of love for family. Sure. Uh, you know, it logically takes the concept of what would what would happen to these babies as they grew, right. if right. they got to grow. Uh, the movie definitely verges with humor, but right on the edge of madness. And at the same time, it's adorable. And at the same time, it's moving. And at the same time, it's sickening. <laughs> I mean, it's got this incredible you know, combination of, of feelings that you have. And I think Moriarty is probably the best Larry Cohen actor. I, mean, I would the, agree completely. The, yeah. He perfectly does it. I heard that he did his close-ups at the end of the day, at the end of the shoot, and they cleared the room out and they just sort of let Moriarty go nuts on. And that, but that was what Moriarty wanted. Like he wanted his, to do his close-ups without any of the other cast there. And, um, and they just would let him. Yeah. I heard that go too. wild, and that he would really allow he would really allow himself to become very emotional. He was a very emotional kind of actor, but uh, like un- very unique and very unusual. The judges Mc- swallows the judges McDonald Carey. Uh, oh, from uh, Days of Days our of lives. Our Lives. Yeah, that's right. So uh, let's run through some other killer baby movies before we go here. All right. Uh, we're not going to count. So got? you have scary babies like Eraserhead, The Fly, Dead Alive, Combat Shop. But specific killer babies, monster babies, Rosemary's Baby, of course. Uh, the Brood. I'm going to put The Brood in there. All right. Uh, the Suckling from 1990, a.k.a. Sewage Baby, a movie I, I don't saw. know that. What's so that? that? Yeah, I didn't see that I saw one. that at midnight at the St. Mark's uh, Cinema. Oh, it stinks. It's no good. Uh, Michael Gingold of Fangoria Magazine plays the suckling. It's, you know, it's like a borderline <laughs> trauma crap. Like, the, it's, it's a baby from an abortion clinic that gets thrown in the sewer. Another baby that lives in the sewer. And then there's toxic waste in the sewer and the baby's a monster. comes like, uh, The Unborn from 1991. Uh, pretty good. And directly inspired by It's Alive, the filmmaker said. Unborn 2, never saw it. Grace. Which is about a vampire baby. Which I is saw pretty, that one. Really pretty good. Yeah. And uh, Hell Baby from 2013 is a uh, crazy comedy starring some of the people from the state. And uh, mm. I never saw it. So those are our killer baby movies. God bless Well, them. I mean, my my last thing's thought about the about It's Alive and, it, and particularly It's Alive and It Lives Again because it takes place at, at home. I feel like these are move these are horror movies about the home, about danger in in the place where you feel the safest. With these ideas where the parents are hunting their children, and then sh- the shift to protecting them and you know saving the monster instead of killing it, and then hiding it in the house, and the babe how the babies are seeking family and they're seeking connection, and the question of is this an innocent baby or is it a violent wild creature and it it lives again 
she, the mother remark. She makes this remark that she's see. I'm calling my baby it. I'm not even calling it he or she anymore. I'm calling it it. And the father points out a lot of people call their baby it, and it can give us this. These th- I think these things just give opportunities for reflection on on how we are as a, as a species in these type of situations. Well, and more specifically, I th- it's taken to an extreme and it's alive. I, I think it's about parenthood, and it's about it's about the about the things they don't tell you about parenthood until it's too late. It's all the complications of parenthood and all the responsibilities of parenthood <laughs> and, the, and the way that you're in the, the, the parenthood puts you into no win situations. Uh, you know, there is no there is no easy answer for a lot of the a lot of the issues that come up that come with being a parent and 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 bringing uh, a life into this world and all that means and what it means for your relationship with the person you brought that that child into the world with, you know, and how it changes like what you say about it lives again. I think that's very true. I think it's mostly about this sort of dissolution of this marriage or this very rocky patch in a marriage. And, 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 and the fact that becoming parents is what is what does that to lots of couples, uh, you know, it changes fundamentally changes the relationship that you have with the world and with your partner and with yourself. Um, you know, everything changes. Uh, so yeah, Absolutely. Hey, I don't know why our baby's homicidal. I guess it gets that from your side of the family. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and that's, in my case, yeah. that's true. And you get the uh, original classic WB logo, you know. Oh, the, yeah. The, the, the three ovals and a circle. Saul Bass. So yeah, good. the Saul Bass. So yeah. good. Sliding right up to the foreground there. Any movie that starts with that, you know you're in heaven. <laughs> well, this has been a Halloween delight. It's a lot All right, gent. About. Yes, we were. I, we're not doing a uh, playing at the same time because I couldn't. Uh, I didn't do the research. I didn't pull up a New York Times. And plus, who the hell knows? You know, I would. I don't know. Should we do one for 1974? We'll have to figure that out. Maybe we'll do it. It's a separate, like a mini episode. That's just that. Oh, a playing at the same yeah. time. I I'll see. tell yeah, you. Okay, yeah, a couple yeah. interesting ones some? I pulled because okay. I figured now, you would have. Now, is this from 77 so. or 74? This is the 77. The 74 is, I'm not counting that because it was it was dumped in, in a few theaters. Yeah, but I did talk about that in terms of what was going on in the world at the time and how it sort of works right. its way into the subtext of the film. But yes, yeah, 77. Okay, so, uh, Go ahead, and These are also showing in New York, uh, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, which is part of a citywide 3D festival. Uh, they also showed like uh, the stewardesses and things like that. Devil's Express, which is a completely awesome horror kung fu hybrid that takes place in New York City subway. I don't know that movie uh, at the all. Kansas City Oh, it's great. It's so good. It came out on DVD a few years ago. Um Kansas City Trucking Company, which is a great Joe Gage gay porn film. <laughs> and then The Sting was back at Radio City um with the Guinness Book of World Records live show. But I noticed like in But The Sting was from 73. Right, but it was a re-release. It was like come see The Sting again. So I, much think like I, saw it. I think I saw it in 77 at Radio City. I think my grandparents took me to see The Sting okay. at Radio City. I remember it vividly at Radio City for some reason. Yeah. I didn't see it. But uh, so at the bottom of the. I saw it in 73. At the, of the ad, it says, uh, kids, come meet Fonzie Saturday morning. So Henry Winkler was there on Saturday morning to greet at the, the kids. At The Sting? At The Sting, yeah. Why Why that? Why aren't other it was. Uh, can't answer that. That question can't be. Hang answered. on a second. I'll, I'm going to read the the small. Hey kids, come see Henry the Fonz Winkler in person 
on the stage at Radio City Music Hall Saturday morning. <sighs> free admission. Free doors admission? Open seven f- yes, doors open 7.45 a.m. How, how could we miss that? Question and answer session, 8.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. MC Ron Lundy, WABC Radio. Now, then could you stay and then watch wow. the sting after that for free, or did they kick you out after Fonzie? I don't know. That's a good oh, question, because I don't know. Would the movie start at 10 a.m.? That seems a little early, but mm, I don't know. Not on a weekend. I, that would happen. That would happen no, in Manhattan. But remember remember Ron Lundy's catchphrase? He would say, hello, love, Ron Lundy, WABC. <laughs> yeah, I remember Howard Stern doing it. <laughs> hello, love. Remember the fonts? Love. He would say, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jabberwocky. Uh, there's a Pink Panther uh, Strikes Again, Revenge of the Pink Panther, Return of the Pink Panther double feature, Shining Star, that weird movie with uh, Harvey Keitel about uh, he's like a record executive trying to break Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen some of that. Hey, Mike, Jabberwocky is on Prime now yeah. if you want to catch up to it. I just put it on my queue. Oh, there you go. Uh, the Beast, that amazing, uh, I, can't, I don't know how to say his name, Valerian Borzik. That Polish, uh, the guy that made Immoral Tales. The Beast is really quite a film. Uh, We're both, both the films. Yeah, that's what I pulled. I usually pull the stuff that might not be in the New York Times. That's good. That's good stuff. Uh, And then uh, the Miss Bear America 77 contest uh, at Show World. That was going on. <laughs> well, Mike, Captain remember... Captain Kink presented that, yeah. Remember, we, we did... Maybe it was in the roller coaster episode. We were looking, and It's Alive was playing at more theaters in Brooklyn than, like, Star Wars and the yeah. next two biggest hits combined. Yeah. In 77. Yes, it's it Alive was. was in, I think, nine or ten theaters in Brooklyn alone on in one week. Right. Which I just think is absolutely amazing. It, it just occurred to me that, that John Marley and Kathleen Lloyd of It Lives Again also... Did a film together in '77. Do you know what it is coming to mind? Other side of midnight. They, they did the car. Wow, the car. Also, also on my list of po- of movie posters that like, oh, I want to see that. I want to see that. I want to see that. That's a good movie. I will too. tell you the day it opened. Uh, it's a live opened in Brooklyn at the Avalon a Theater. We know the Duffield, yeah, the Granada, the Harbor, which I don't know, and Kings Plaza South. Oh, wasn't it the Trump yet? I saw it at the Oyster Bay Theater. Yeah, Long Island. Oh yes, I'm looking there now. Oh no, so so Nassau. I have. Uh, well, it must not have gotten to Oyster Bay immediately. All right. So well, thanks so been much, an Chef. This joy. is a Halloween extravaganza. This has been the most. I feel. And, uh, I feel like this has been the most serious, like sort of film school conversation we've. This has been cinephilic. Yeah. Yes. I haven't listened to the. I haven't really had the chance to listen to some of the other ones, so Thanks, I didn't know Jeff. what you guys Thanks usually do. But I figured. <laughs> it, it's it's not a personal no, thing. You want me to get into the details of why, why no, I've been no, busy? No, no. But I know you've been doing it for a while, and I just and I thought maybe I should hear what you guys usually do. But then I thought, ah, just bring, bring it. Just, bring it. You brought yourself. Let me just it was a, be it me because I I know I know it's alive and it lives again. Yeah. I don't. I don't know uh, Island of the Alive as intimately. Give it um, another shot, Jeff. It, it's alive and it lives again. Yeah. Came in. Oh, I, I I got it right over behind me. It's you know I've got it, it in the house. There. All right, everybody. It's available. We will uh, see you next time. We're talking about uh, uh, Audrey thank Rose you, next everybody. time. Another 1977 and, film. Fuck you. Another film from it. April 1977. It turns out. Oh Jesus! Really? All right. Oh yeah. 
Well, you know, yeah. I want to say that John P. Ryan, this also should save this for uh, for that conversation. But John P. Ryan's character in It Lives Again is kind of like Anthony Hopkins in um, Audrey Rose, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's in many ways. But, uh, Jeff, I'm going to send you um, uh, a folder that you can drop your file in once you save it. And- okay. And Mike already knows how to do that for me. So I hope that was okay, though. Oh my I, god, I, it was fantastic! He, you were you kicked ass. Okay, good. And you made me reevaluate. Right, it go, lives go, again, go. and and made me think better of it. <laughs> Just sit and give it all over to Larry, and let him let him take charge, and he'll walk you through it. He'll walk you right through it. He'll show you all the things. All right. Well, <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing it. It was a. It was fun. It was a thrill. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.